With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Netherlands, a picturesque nation filled with windmills, tulip fields, and uh, coffee shops. The nation is looked to by many as an extremely forward-thinking place that practices some pretty progressive policies. The nation has an incredibly strong social security system with universal healthcare, robust retirement pensions, as well as allowances for maternity leave. And these kinds of policies are mirrored in other areas as well. The nation is home to some relatively high tax rates and the protections for employees are very strong, almost to the point that people joke it's impossible to be fired in the Netherlands. So, this kind of looks like a liberal paradise, right? Well, it would be if it were not hiding a dirty little secret. This postcard perfect little nation is according to the World Bank, the most unequal place on earth and the extent of the inequality is simply staggering. We have explored South Africa on the channel before, which normally gets this less than desirable title, and if you were to pose this question to Google, it's what you would walk away thinking. But it isn't the whole story. In terms of wealth inequality in recent years, South Africa has been pretty tame. The Netherlands, by contrast, is the only country on Earth that is more unequal than the world itself. So. What is going on here? Similar policies to the ones that have been commonplace in the Netherlands for decades are being proposed by politicians in places like the United States as a way to curb the issue of wealth inequality. But if we look at the results, it doesn't look like they'll do that at all. So to really understand what is going on here, as always, we have to look at a few key issues. How did the Netherlands of all places become the land of inequality? What does this teach us about the nature of wealth in the modern world, and how can this help us create more robust economic policies that will work to benefit everyone? Oh, and of course, while we're here, we will call this a country video and put the Netherlands on the Economics Explained leaderboard. This episode of Economics Explained was made possible by our fans on Patreon. If you would like to gain early access to these videos before they're uploaded to YouTube, as well as participate in exclusive Q&A sessions, which are now held every Saturday at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, please consider supporting our channel at patreon.com slash economics explained. Now, inequality is a strange thing. There are many different ways to quantify it and metrics that we use to make sense of it, but outside of the figures, there is no getting around the fact that it is a controversial issue. The last time we explored wealth inequality on this channel, we attempted to objectively explore if it was something that had negative impacts on long-term growth in the economy. Our conclusion was yes, maybe, depending on a set list of factors and conditions. So basically the most fenced city answer we could have possibly given based on existing research, and it is still the most disliked video on the channel by a fair margin. To say people take this topic seriously is a bit of an understatement. But fair enough, it is a real issue that deserves proper attention by government all around the world. 
but the key to getting that attention is to understand what these decision makers will be looking at. The equality of countries is measured with something called the Gini coefficient. Now people might have heard this term before or seen graphs like these ones, but still not truly understand what it actually shows. So to keep it simple, let's imagine an economy with three people and three dollars to be gained in income each year. A perfectly even system would have each of those participants earn one dollar each year, and if we looked at that cumulative total for each person, we would have a perfect y equals x line. The income of person one is one dollar, the second person plus the first person is two dollars, and the income of the third person plus the second person plus the first person is three dollars. Mind-blowing stuff, I know. This perfect world of equality would have a Gini coefficient of zero, meaning that everybody earns exactly the same amount. Cool, but now let's look at the opposite, where all three dollars go to just one of the three people. Well, this hypothetical economy would have a Gini coefficient of one, meaning the system could not get more unequal because one person controls all of the income. Now in reality, real economies have a lot more people and a lot more dollars to go around, so the actual figure normally has a lot more decimal places, but will always be somewhere within this range of 0 to 1. Cool, so that's the Gini coefficient, and for most people watching I'm sure there were no huge surprises there, but this figure can be used to measure two things, income equality and wealth inequality. Naturally income inequality tends to get a lot of the attention, people riling over how a CEO has earned 300 times more than their average worker or whatever, but if anything, Income inequality is just the driver of wealth inequality. People who earn more can naturally save more, and their savings compound over time if well invested. But if incomes were more even, then this should stop the process at the beginning. It should cut off the flow of money building this wealth divide, right? Well maybe, but that theory may need to hold up to the lessons of the Dutch. The Netherlands is very similar to nations like Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and yes of course Norway, in the sense that social policies are quite strong and are funded by taxes that are quite high. That is why if we look at the World Bank's records on income inequality, all of these nations rank very low. Yet despite the obvious connections between income and wealth, all of these nations have very high wealth inequality. Of course, none quite to the extent of the Netherlands, but even a nation like Sweden the poster child of democratic socialism has a higher level of wealth inequality than the United States, Brazil, or India. So how is this possible? How are rich people hoarding such a huge share of the nation's wealth, despite sharing in a comparatively modest portion of the nation's total income? Well, to answer that question we actually have to look at the side that normally gets the least attention, the poorest households. Unlike income, where the least you can earn in a given year after taxes is zero dollars, your net worth can be negative. For example, someone with huge student loan debts that doesn't own a house or a car or has minimal savings might have a negative net worth. Now in the Netherlands this isn't so much of an issue, schooling is heavily subsidised, but that doesn't mean that people don't take on other types of debt. In fact, they seek out debt on an even larger scale, through a home loan. Now to viewers in most countries, getting a home loan requires saving up a deposit so that you own a portion of the property. Most banks around the world would like you to put at least 20% or at a bare minimum 5% down so that you have skin in the game and will be more likely to pay back that mortgage. 
This means that if you own a home, even if you have a big mortgage on it, you still probably have a positive net worth because your house is an asset and it is worth more than the liability of the home loan. So as long as you don't have any other debts or the value of the property hasn't depreciated, you should be in the green. This is not the case in the Netherlands though, where borrowers can and in fact are encouraged to borrow over 100% of the value of their home as a mortgage. The National Mortgage Guarantee is a government program that ensures bank loans on homes, so if the borrower doesn't repay the bank and the bank can't make all of the money it needs back from repossessing the home, oh well, it can just get a check from the government for the difference, essentially making home loans completely risk free. This is actually accelerated by the fact that mortgage repayments in the Netherlands are tax deductible. What that means is that if you earn 100,000 euros in a year, but you are paying 40,000 euros in interest to the bank on your home loan, you would only pay tax as if you were earning 60,000 euros. This does two things to our wealth inequality metric. For starters, it skews the influence of those high taxes. If people can claim significant deductions on high incomes by having large mortgages, then it doesn't really matter what the tax rate is because it can just be redirected into building up a real estate portfolio. The other thing it does is encourage people to take on debt. Up until recently, people were able to borrow as much as 110% of the value of their house as a mortgage. That means if a young couple was just starting out with a brand new 300,000 euro family home, they could borrow an extra 30,000 euros on top of it and suddenly find themselves with a negative net worth of 30,000 euros. This means that a good chunk of the population is underwater on their homes and that's perfectly fine. This is one of the failings of the Gini coefficient as a simple metric. Dutch people, even the Dutch people who might find themselves with a negative net worth, all live very comfortable lives and yet the figures by themselves would suggest that this is some kind of tyrannical dystopia with a population of peasants struggling to get by with a class of billionaire overlords watching over them. But of course, it simply isn't the case. Credit and access to it for responsible purposes can actually be one of the greatest determinants of social mobility in an economy, but it can at the same time be something that accelerates wealth inequality metrics beyond the control of regular government intervention, like we see here. For an extreme example, Donald Trump once joked that a homeless man on the street was $900 million richer than he was because at the time he was in crippling debt. Despite this, his lifestyle was obviously far more comfortable than the homeless man's and no rational economist would call him the poorest man in America, although I'm sure the comments section will and I already regret using this example. But anyway, the takeaway here is that negative net worth does not necessarily mean poor, but it does make figures look that way. Cool. So does that solve the riddle of Dutch inequality? Well, no. It's certainly a contributing factor, but it's not the whole story. In fact, this extreme wealth inequality might actually be the outcome of matured capitalism. The Netherlands was the first nation in history that economists could really point to and say, this is capitalism as we know it in the modern day. And yes, there were systems of trade that stretched back thousands of years throughout human history, but most of those societies still had productive potential decided on by rulers rather than consumers. In our video on the Dutch East India Company, we've found that the Netherlands pioneered incredibly modern ideas like stock markets, limited liability companies, and speculative assets as far back as the 1600s. Beyond this, the Netherlands has not really experienced much in the way of a shakeup of this system in the past 400 years. That's not to say that there wasn't wars and coups and all of that good stuff. This is modern history Europe we're talking about, I mean, come on. But 
It's more so that if you were wealthy in the nation, you could continue to pass this money down and down generations without the same fear of it being guillotined somewhere in the family tree. That's why the money in the Netherlands is old money. The people that are rich are, to be honest, not that rich. Not compared to American, Chinese or Russian billionaires anyway. But if we were to look at the nation's wealthiest person, Charlene de Cavallo Heineken, we can learn a lot about the nature of wealth in the country. This lady is 66 years old and is surprise surprise in the beer business, although she didn't found the company, neither did her father or his father, and in fact even her great grandfather didn't actually found the Heineken brand as we know it today, he simply convinced his already wealthy parents to buy a brewery with a family fortune that he just slapped his name on. That family fortune dated back to the Dutch East India Company. What this means is that income taxes will do absolutely nothing to control this wealth. Income? <laughs> this family hasn't earned an income since Napoleon was in diapers. Wealth begets wealth and the most powerful variable in compounding money is time. Normally this is controlled by having to split wealth between multiple heirs who will inevitably squander the family fortune, but European elites tend to do things a little bit differently. This is a massive generalisation of course, but a majority of the family fortune will be left to a selected child, who will be trained in keeping the family's assets as protected and low key as possible. The other children will still live a very comfortable lifestyle, but the fortune does not get split up equally, like it did with the Waltons let's say. This family structure combined with a massive time frame can generate some pretty funky results. Consider this, would you rather get 100% returns on your portfolio, that is doubling it every year for 10 straight years, or just 10% returns, which is closer to the market rate of return over the last century, for 100 years? Let's assume that these are all compounded annually and both examples are starting with $10,000 for simplicity's sake. Well. Our investor with a 10 year outlook turned that $10,000 into $10,240,000. Those are some serious tendies. But our more conservative investor with a 100 year outlook will be walking away with $137,806,123.40, which even accounting for inflation is significantly better than that first portfolio, who had an unrealistic return expectation anyway. Time in the markets beats timing the market, and when you have had 400 years in the market, well, it's going to create some serious wealth concentrations. So does this mean that capitalism is inevitably going to grow more and more unequal as time passes? Well, yeah, probably. This effect will be less severe in countries that don't quite have the same dynastic inheritance scheme, and things like the giving pledge amongst big ticket billionaires will certainly make a difference, but as we have seen with the Netherlands, it's not the top 10 on the Forbes list that is going to change these figures, it's the hundreds of other families that intentionally slip below the radar that will. Now, is this a problem? Well, maybe, but maybe not. I would much rather be in the bottom 10% of the Netherlands than the bottom 10% of Ethiopia, which is comparatively a far more equal country by Gini coefficient metrics. In fact, I would rather be in the bottom 10% of the Netherlands than the top 10% of Ethiopia. But that goes to show that inequality doesn't always cause issues, so long as there are equitable systems in place to make sure that everyone genuinely has the ability to rise up, and that comfort, safety and the well-being of average people is not sacrificed in the name of the profits for a few. I think I somehow managed to make everybody on the left and right angry with that sentence. Please like the video, I feel like I'm going to need it to balance out the dislikes. Okay, the fun stuff. 
Time to put the Netherlands on our Economics Explained national leaderboard. But before that, I'm going to take California off here because American states are getting their own list. Also, our video on Texas was one of the worst performing videos we have ever released this year, so don't go recommending your home state for a video until that one reaches 200,000 views. I gotta follow market demand here. Okay, self-pity aside. The Netherlands has a large advanced economy with a GDP of 914 billion US dollars. It gets a 7 out of 10, falling just short of the trillion dollar club. GDP per capita is very impressive at just under $60,000 per person as of 2019. What's more is that the income is actually spread very evenly. It's within the top 15 countries in the world for income equality, which makes the wealth inequality all the more interesting. Either way, it gets an 8 out of 10. In the weekend category, stability and confidence. Well, that's a no-brainer. 10 out of 10. Any economy that has harboured wealth for over 400 years is obviously doing something right. Growth is a bit meh. Like most European nations, it has not really made much progress since 2008 and the Eurozone crisis. I can't imagine the fallout of the coronavirus is going to do them any favours either, so it gets a 2 out of 10, because at least it hasn't gone backwards. Finally, industry. Well, the nation is quite impressive here. It has always been on the cutting edge of capitalism, and even today it's the centre of advanced financial services that are used all over the world. It gets a 9 out of 10. Altogether, it gets an average score of 7.2 out of 10, only really been brought down by lacklustre growth. Even still, very impressive, and it claims a solid spot on the Economics Explained leaderboard. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest video. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. This video is made possible by our patrons over on Patreon, so if you enjoy these video, please consider supporting the channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys. Bye. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.